Hi, this is Nachum Zayin from Grand Heights. Joining you today with this new podcast, which I'm launching with Abish's help, the Jewish History Shmuzin, which will smooth about various episodes in Jewish history. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many other platforms. And Be'ezer Hashem will also get it to more platforms. You can also follow, follow us on a, WhatsApp, on a WhatsApp group dedicated to this podcast. Reach out to me for a link for this group. The idea is hopefully we'll produce 10 podcasts in the span of 10 to 12 weeks. Then we'll see what we're holding and we'll see if this podcast will continue, if this pro- project will continue or, yeah, or not. So this depends on the, obviously, if in order for it to continue, it depends on the listener base and, and obviously sponsorships. But every person can do something. If you rate and review this podcast, it'll be a big help. Regards to questions. Or if you want to reach out to sponsorships, or you want to reach get the get the WhatsApp link, you can reach out to me at Nochum Zajak J History Schmooze at gmail.com. That's N-O-C-H-U-M Z-A-J-A-C J-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y S-H-M-O-O-Z-E at gmail.com. Sorry for that long uh, address. Yeah, I just want to discuss the general style of the podcast. We're starting it out. Sometimes we'll discuss a general theme. Sometimes we'll go into the nitty-gritty of individual episodes in its full detail. As time will go on, and if this podcast will endure, we'll probably develop a certain flavor. But in general, I can say as follows. Probably, I'm not limited to this, but probably I'll be sticking to topics relating to Eastern Europe and America the last time. 300 years. Also, as Lubavitch, I'll probably focus many times on episodes which relate to Lubavitch, so I'll focus on Lubavitch, on Lubavitch and on Lubavitch part of the episodes, but it doesn't have to be that way. It includes many other ma- matters. And obviously, it depends on what the listeners like and obviously what the future sponsors like. Yeah. So, in general, there are many people to thank for this, to make this happen, but besides for thanking people for making this happen, also thinking, you know, this is not original information, uh, you know, I didn't discover America, I obviously got it from all different places. Uh, what I'm doing is, the packaging, the packaging, also, not everything's going to be in depth, this is more, as we said, we're smoothing, you know, like, you know, we all know, you know, shishi smoothing over the tone, you know. But as, as I said, you can... You can reach out to me with your comments, your impressions, how could it better improve for the future episodes. If you feel that my language could use some improve, improvement, not to throw in too much English, yeshivish, whatever it is. Um, we all remember from uh, from, uh, from the famous song you used to read, yeah? So if you feel that you have any constructive advice, by all means. Okay, now to the topic at hand. So this podcast is specific episode is titled "Religious Life in the Mirror of Civil War in Russia, in the Russian Empire in Russia, the Eve of World War One." What are we discussing? We're discussing how what was the interplay between civil war and religious life, Jewish religious life. In, in the Russian Empire, right before World War One, you know, after during World War One, after World War One, everything changed. But 
we're discussing that period at the time. Now, obviously, this is a very brass, uh, vast and broad subject, and we're obviously I can discuss everything. So what we're going to try to do in this specific episode, this episode and the next episode, is discuss it through the lens of the famous rabbinic commission, rabbinical commission, uh, the the Visky Commissia of 1910, and I will discuss this commission and use it as a backdrop to bring out the various issues which were at play during this period. Now, the truth is that the, the topic of the conference which took place at this commission is also very broad and a vast topic. And the truth is, if somebody wants in the future, we can make an entire series out of it, a very long series. But the thing is, right now it's a, a very it's a, it's it's a whole issue on its own, and I'm not going to get involved in the whole thing. I'm going to just focus on a few examples of the discussions that took place at the conference to give us insight with what they had to contend with. This is not all the issues. This is just a mere sampling of the issues, and it does not capture the entire weight of the discussion. We and also in the examples itself, we're only discussing the surface smoothing. Few cases, the service, and to give a taste. I'll try to discuss many of these cases as we as we go along, but obviously we're limited in time, and we'll have to finish it when we have to finish it, because time is short. I do want to point out that many of the issues which we're going to discuss, which took place at this time, didn't only take. It wasn't only an issue in Russia. It could be an issue in other countries. Some of these issues could be could have been an issue, which which was an issue then, could also be an issue today in certain places, in certain different ways. But we want to discuss it through the way, the prism of how it played itself out in the Russian Empire, and we'll use a picture of the Commission to provide us a snapshot of some, and again, only some of these issues. In this. Um, episode part one will discuss some of the smaller lesser known issues and the next one i'm going to discuss mainly the the discussion of the rabbonus the mind with the rabbonus i guess again we'll see how much time maybe we'll discuss which is also important maybe a few more things to 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 carve out the edges now let's just discuss a little background for this thing you know so the institution known as the rabbinic commission you know is Nishkinaimaisa was established uh, within the ministry uh, in the Ministry of Interior in Russia in 1848 to to serve as you know uh, some type of you know um, a central consistory that would provide be able to provi- provide the government with information concerning Yiddishkeit uh, and decide on halachic issues. Um, the seven members of the commission were usually nominated by 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 the minister with at least a candidate from. Uh, Elected by Jewish communities, um, however, the commission was it never became a, a permanent body and only convened irregularly. Um, so it, it it happened a number of times, and then in February 1908, the Ministry of Interior announced the what was called the the convocation of the sixth rabbinic commission, and after many postponements, they finally met in 1910, over two years after it. Now. Something very interesting took place over here. All the other times, it was like a, j- a joke of conference, and and with one of the conferences didn't even have any rabbinim. They were called the rabbinic commission to have rabbinim, and in those times, the ministry itself formulated the question for the commission. Um, 
um, this time I wanted to hear the opinion of the local Labanim. Officially, Klamis, it was after the revolution of 1905 and 1907, and the Prime Minister and the Minister of Interior, his name was Peter Stalipin, they made up, they claimed they were having a new mode of government, governing, we're going to give way to the public opinion, so here too we're going to give way to the way to the public opinion, and officially this was, it's not clear, because, you know, it never, as we soon explained, it never ended up happening, nothing ever came out of this commission, but the convocation of this commission was supposed to be the first stage of some vague plan to reorganize Yiddish, Jewish communal life in order to efficiently eliminate unnecessary tensions between the Jewish population and the Russian state. So, uh, therefore, the announcement of this sixth commission in 1908, when they made the announcement, it was accompanied by instructions to officially, to, who, but who were the instructions given to? Officially recognize the bottom. That means in colloquially known as the bottom time, as we're going to soon going to discuss. And this will obviously play an important role in the second episode. So it, it wrote, it, they wrote to them that they have to convene meetings and formulate questions for the commission's deliberations out of, and and without any restrictions. Can you imagine that the Russian Empire letting you meet without any restrictions? Okay. So the mice is a site. So now we have a site. So we have all these conferences taking place, but the big problem is. That these are in a bonimitam. Who are the bonimitam? So, so in very short, and we will discuss this at length in the next episode. But basically, the bonimitam of Medina from the from the, they were basically officially recognized as bonim. They were called crown bonim. A lot of them were manatim gemurim. Not everybody. There were some who tamid the chamref tilson was a rabimitam. They were but they weren't. They were the ones recognized by the government. Government, why? What's this all about? Because the government said that in order to become recognized by the government, become a crown rabbi, you have to have a certain wide, wide secular education and certain training. And most regular rabbanim didn't have it. So, 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 um, so that was the massive in most of Russia. Now, Russia was made up of the Palin settlement and Congress Poland, which is that when the Russian Empire gobbled up. Most of what was then known as the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth uh, in the, from the period of 1772 to 1795. So when they, they gobbled it up, so, so uh, they, it was over the years, there's a lot of, it's a discussion on its own. It's, it warrants its discussion on its own. They left out this part called Congress Poland, the, or the Kingdom of Poland, which ran on its own, sort of under the Russian government, ran on its own r- r- own r- um, governance. Now, in the 1860s, there was a revolution that changed over, it became directly under the Russian government. However, they still had certain own rules of governance, and some of those rules of governance stayed till the outbreak of World War One. There, the Ravnitam from the get-go, did not need the same Russia, the same sec- le- level of secular education as much as was needed in um, in uh, in Poland, uh, in, in 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 Russia. But they also needed secular education. So outside Congress Poland, you had an entire penal settlement with uh, fourteen or fifteen uh, gubernias. And, and then you had Congress Poland, and they had different rules. So the Rabbanu time in the whole Poland settlement had to know a ton of secular knowledge. 
and uh, very few, very few in the time in the time of this conference, there was only four rabbanim that were able to be regular rabbanim and rabbanim time. One of them was famously known as the Behudanib Tzilson. But in Poland, you had to know limited second knowledge. You had to know a bit of the local language and a bit of some other smattering of the major. And most chashu rabbanim in Poland were rabbanim time, including the Divinim Malkiel, etc. Is a is a famous uh, Yiddishist author, a Yiddish author named is Isaac Bashava Zinger. No, to figure out why he's more famous than uh, Chaim Gaza, but that's not Nagar for our purposes. But anyways, so he had a famous father, not famous, but if you read it, his biography you learn his father's name was Pichas Mendel Zinger, Pichas Menachem Mendel. You read about him. That he was so uh, such a kanoi that he refused to know the language of the land. He didn't know how to read Russian and Polish, and because of that, he couldn't become a rav. Couldn't become a rav because he didn't know Polish and, and Russian. Uh, most of the many of the bottom of the Russian Empire couldn't read Russian. So what? Oh, because the local bottom in the Polish in Congress Poland, the king of Poland, they talked did know Polish, and big deal. So they knew Polish. They were the same that Admitam and and the local rav. The same rabbi, they didn't have what was called the double rabbinate. The double, they didn't have this issue because, because, uh, because you had to, you had to, from the ab initio, you, you, you only needed to know a limited amount. This, Pinchas Mendel Zinger, he was such a kid, I didn't even want to know that. No. So, why am I bringing this up now? I should wait till the next uh, episode. I'm just trying to explain the background over here. That in Poland, you had conferences, the conference, a lot of local conferences, and then afterwards, he had a major conference in, in Varsha and Warsaw. They were made up by the local Abanim. And all these local Abanim were actually Abanim Itam. So they, uh, and, and, and these, after they have the conferences, they write, they have a protocols, they have minutes. And then they, uh, they have um, conclusions, and they send these conclusions with suggestions, to, with memoranda to the Russian government, central government, to the interior ministry. These were official um, official, official, official conferences. However, in the in the Russian Empire, in the Pale of Settlement, you have all these meetings happening, but they're only happening between the Crown Rabbis and Abadim Itam. You don't have the the regular Abadim able to send the letters. So it was very complicated. How they were able to would was Rabbi Tam was nice enough to let the official love come in. Every each case was dependent on its own. There was one exception where there was a massive asifa. A very chosh vasif, a very important asif, a very important conference that took place in Vilna, where the Rebbe of Shabbat of Rabavich, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, he got special permission from his special representatives in uh, Petterberg, Michel Trenin and others, Rabbi Garfikon, etc. They got that permission to set up a conference in Vilna. And that conference in Vilna was a conference where many Gdali saw took, took part of this conference. And that itself, as we said, is part of the, it deserves an episode on its own. But it's important for our purposes because um, when we'll discuss the issues we discuss at the conference, so we'll have to discuss the Vilna conference, which <coughs> was a very important component over here. Now, as I, the memoranda which, um, which came out of these, uh, these gatherings. Or, or written up by individual upon them, were sent to the Ministry of Interior. Oh, but how did he get it? They're through the provincial authorities. And each provincial governor added his own opinion on the measures that were proposed by these upon them in his gubernia, in his province. 
these accompanying letters is a sugi from the atzmi because it's a glimpse of the attitude of the governor, which I don't want to get into. In any in any case, in the as a result of this government, governmental initiative, 125 memorandums from individual abundant and, and the Sifus from each province of the Pale of Settlement of the Kingdom Poland, Poland was sent to the Ministry of Interior in the course of 1908. Um, this is besides for this main assembly that took place in Warsaw, in, 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 Warsaw in, in the end of 1908, in, um, already in Tafri Shamach in... in um, Kislev time, and then and then about twenty of the Chashvah Rabbanim and Askanim uh, uh, for the Pale Settlement met in Vilna in Nisan time, um, Tafish Tamachtas, April nineteen oh nine. There were also the Imri Emes was there at the behest of the of the Rebbe Rashab. He was there half the time. Then he left, and his brother the Mendel came, and then the Rebbe came, and the, the Rabbanim submitted the most important um, question, the problems. Um, that they draw that they drew, they that they that they felt the commission should could, should consider and they proposed their desired solutions, and then as he said these were governors that they they mixed in their own you know in Yana. now now here's the mice the mice is that already the governors and a lot of the governors each place had their each place was run by different governors who had his own preference but you know a lot of them were anti semites and uh, and. Um, and they already, you know, they uh, they didn't like certain things because basically what happens is these people have all these memoranda and they're they're suggesting we change this and this law. This law interferes with Yiddishkeit in a certain way, and we have to change this law because that's a problem. Or if the law doesn't need to be changed, the way the law is being implemented needs to be changed, and and uh, and it's a very big problem. It affects Yiddishkeit, so. These governors, if he's anti-Semite or whatever, he doesn't like it, so they, they didn't want. They said, you know, well, 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 you know, you can't change the law. This is it's not a good idea. So, in the Interior Ministry itself, they decided that a good ton of stuff. This guy Alexander Haruzin, the director of the Department of uh, Foreign Cults in the Ministry of, in, of Interior, that was he was the, the highest official director responsible for Jewish religious affairs and. Uh, himself, he was a former governor. He was the governor of, of Bessarabia. Um, he didn't like a lot of these proposals, so he rejected 32 issues of the discussion. That means they couldn't even bring it up by the rabbinic commission in 1910. Uh, a lot of these issues that he turned down were issues that I'm going to bring up now. But why is it important? And he basically, I just want to say, he basically. A lot of the stuff you left in were mamish stuff that were related to the way the Yiddish community was structured itself. But things, or laws that were aimed at, at, the, at the religious community, but laws that were officially aimed to be general laws that also affected the Jewish community, that he didn't want to bring up. Now, I'm going to discuss it later, and you'll see, whatever you hear about it, um, you could, it, fine, either, either he's right or he's wrong, but there's one, there's one, there's one crucial point I want to bring out. Whether or not this is a law aimed at Jewish community or not aimed at Jewish community, it's irrelevant because it affected the religious, the religious community. And since it affected the religious community, so it's, it's the gay to our purposes to use it as a backdrop to figure out what, what was going on. Now, um, <coughs> I mean, 
I, I should also point out that Derek Agab, that there was an after effect of the conference, because after the conference was over, so they came up with this a list of conclusions of the conference itself, and you have a 400-page protocol, and you have the other minutes, and you have the conclusions, but someone has to work with the Russian Interior Ministry to implement it. And so there, there are no minutes, you know, you work inside, so, and also, the Interior Ministry did try to read all the other memoranda and take it into account, so it did have some in, some impact, but here the question here is, my discussion here is, I'm not discussing the Russian Rabbinic Conference per se, to discuss its impact, what I am discussing is, the examples that they bring up and to explain its real-life effect. If I want to discuss the impact of the conference, the conference never had any impact because in the end of the day, what happened was it took the wheels of Russian bureaucracy, you know, took very slow, and there were other reasons happening, and by the time World War One came uh, came about, nothing was implemented, and then obviously it's World War One, and then obviously, you know, the form of the Russian Empire, etc., etc. So that's not, you know, really... We're not discussing the impact. We're discussing... And the examples brought out. And a total side note, I want to point out something else that happened by the conference. It was, it was a momentous occasion because, you know, you know, <coughs> you know, you had people from the opposite ends from, from Jewish life in, in Russia, like from the most extreme kanoim till the most, you know, secular stalwart, you know, all together and and everybody in between and, you know, people who never want to get together with each other and the shit that wouldn't get together and, you know, some of these people had similar shit as to, to the shit of Thailand or Austria, which in other countries, which I don't want to get into. And here, they had to sit in the same table because they were trying to angle for, for, for a seat in the table because they were trying to, you know, inform the government how you're supposed to deal with this. But, they got together. This was sort of a, the Pnei, the, it was a face that represented the Russian Kehillah at the time, Jewish Kehillah. In the end of the day, um, they, they actually built up relationships. They had, you know, because they had to talk to each other and they had to, there's actually relationships built up. So really, there was, you know, it's a commission supposed to be seven people, but, you know, it was, they had so much issues were being brought up. So the idea was that um, <laughs> there were like two, com- two commissions, one that discussed more narrow important issues, and then all the other small issues, including everybody else, which the big commission was called the Sifas HaRabonim, and then there was the Sifas HaYehudim. So the Sifas HaRabonim, you had the Rosh Hashanah of Tzirosun, and then you had these 600 people, six other people, where basically you had, um, you had the Rebbe Rashab, and, and this other Lubavitcher's name was Remendel Chaim, um, and then you had Chaim Moiser, obviously, Chaim Briskid, and somebody named of Raponkovsky from Odessa, and then you had this 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 lawyer, his name was Mazor from Kiev. It's very funny; they they didn't belong there, and and but you know all the wise all those fried people, you know, part of the the commission, you know. I said one of the other commissions never had the rabbanim, you know this, and the crown rabbis did rabbanim mitam were they, but you know, but some people wanted that, and this part should be the esmer should be on it, but you know the Russian government was fine with this. I mean the other parts, um, uh, the other parts were uh, you know had other people very chashav people as we mentioned it was the the esmerach the marcheshes and many other people. I just just point out that officially, you know, it was an official conference, so so you're officially supposed to speak in Russian. 
So, so a lot of the Rabbanim couldn't speak in Russian. They understood Russian, they couldn't speak, so so they had a big problem. They couldn't, you know, in between themselves, a lot of times they spoke to each other in Yiddish, but to make the official drashas, um, especially with the, with the, with many particular things, so there they weren't able to, to express themselves. Though the Rebbe Shab, who refused to speak Russian, understood Russian, refused to speak it, he had a Mendochain who was a fluent, fluent Russian speaker, he would represent his shita and always speak for him. Um, okay, so now that was the entire background. And now I want to discuss the actual cases. Now, there's a number of things I want to discuss. I don't think we'll have time for everything. I'm going to discuss Shabbos. Now, even with Shabbos, there's, there's many, many things to discuss with Shabbos. There's a number of things, and I probably won't be able to, um, to, to discuss everything with Shabbos, but I just want to discuss a few of the, a few of the Yonim. There's about four things with Shabbos. I'll discuss some of them. Shabbos is obviously the most important thing because as they always, as everybody, you know, always emphasize that the issue of Shabbos is something that the whole Yiddishkeit depends on Shabbos and that's the Iker of Yiddishkeit. And so, you know, they wanted that people should grant Yiddin conditions that they weren't compelled to break the Lachas of Shabbos. Um, I think that in regards to all of the Yonim of Shabbos, they were not actually allowed to speak about it by the actual conference because officially they were laws that were not made to, you know, apply to Jews. It happened to be applied to Jews. And because of that, they couldn't bring it up. It, meaning, it, it was a general law that happened to apply to Jews. So the first first issue was the issue of what's called the Sunday laws. The Sunday laws, you're not going to work. Now, what's this about? You know, so in America always had the famous bloom laws, where many, many states had different laws and various levels. I think some of them still exist in some parts of the United States, where, <coughs> from a combination of factors, some of them come from like an old conservative element, you need to have a day of rest, maybe religious element, and they said that basically you can't work on Sunday. A certain type of work, they said, the different levels of the law. We also had the trade unions not the trade unions, the worker unions, they also opposed work on Sunday because they wanted to give a day rest to their workers. That's an interesting constellation of, of, of forces. But in Russia, it was a bit different. So, you know, I, I saw in one book, he's discussing this law, and he says, oh, this law was aimed against the Jews. There was certain anti-Semitism involved, but actually, the fact of the matter is, it wasn't Mamish aimed against the Jews. So I just want to discuss a bit of the background over here. But before I discuss the background, I want to point out that this issue was so serious that on one hand, when it was discussed in the Sif and Vilna, they said, you know, we can't wait till 1910 to discuss it. We need to discuss it now. We have to bring it up with the Duma, which was the Russian so-called parliament, which was actually discussing the law at the time, and they wanted to go earlier to, to speak to them. While on the other hand, um, even after the Sif and Petterberg, they still was all types of shtadlas to deal with it until they reached their conclusion. Uh... I'll point out that there was a meeting <coughs> which took place in 1911 in, in Ad-Turkish supposed to be in, in Lodz, it ended up being in Varsha. This meeting you had that Chaim was there and you had the Rabbi Shab and the the, the Shemi Shmong and the, <coughs> the, 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 the Atlas from Shavli the Bitch Lepanovision the Blaze of Abulam from Minsk uh, whatever, there was many, many Hashem people there, did I So, I mean, this went on afterwards. There was another meeting that happened later on in, uh, in, a, in, a, 
in Atzvotsky, in Sivatavish Ayananus, until the idea announced in the, in the in the base shvat tafish ayin gimel that oh finally the duma said it we we can't whatever they allowed them to keep the store open for five five hours. My, my, we'll discuss this in a second keeping it open and closed. But my point is that this went on long after the sifra, and it was it was something that they that they were going to have to deal with independent of the sifra or not. There were many issues that were at play of, uh, that were discussed in the sifra. So some of them had to live with some of them not. But this was considered what we call chiuni. This was essential to their very existence. So what was this issue? So, <coughs> you know, we all know, you know, many of these Christians, they keep their stores closed on, on Sunday, and the Yidin, they keep it open on Shabbos, they keep it open on Sunday, they close it on Shabbos, and while the Christians have it open on Shabbos. Now, what is anti-Semitic is, everybody knows that in the, the main laws of 18, uh, 80, May 1882, that there was an uh, issue of a wave of anti, after the wave of anti-Jewish pogroms in 1881, 1882, so there was a whole bunch of laws made May, May 3rd, 1882, to claim it, protect the Christian population, especially the peasants, from so-called Jewish exploitations. And what they say, so it was a number of things, you know, Yidin um, were prohibited from, from, from settling the countryside of the Palin settlement. There were people, firstly, they were, were newly settled, but a lot of people were there for many years and had to leave. Um, and they weren't allowed to, to, to acquire land in the countryside. And they also, there at that time, they weren't allowed to perform trade on, uh, trade on Sunday and certain type of uh, holidays. However, the mice is... That uh, that this really depended, this closing the store on, on Sunday depended on each municipality, and uh, and it depended on the policy concerning the Christian shops. And the majority of the cities of the Pale shops could be open on Sunday for five hours in the afternoon. The closure of all shops on Sundays, however, was mandated by the government in November 1906 as a step to improving working conditions of shop assistants and other employees by being trade by providing them with one day off a week. Yeah? Um, see, this is for the workers' rights. They, they were trying to claim that they're helping the workers after the revolt, 1905. So they said this is similar to, to the laws in America that, that were pushed more by the workers' unions, but not for the reason of having a day of rest, of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a sacred day of rest. Um, now, the thing is, these 1906 rules also allowed local authorities to permit limited Sunday trade, depending on the local conditions, the presence of significant non-Christian population. So in some cities or provinces, the old order remained intact, but choose Jewish shops open on Sunday for five hours, while other places it was... It was case-by-case basis. The introduction of such a measure in general was considered by the Rabbanim to be a terrible thing, a serious threat to Yiddishkeit, an observance of Yiddishkeit, because the strict implementation of Sunday closures would force Yiddin to abstain from work for two days a week, leading to devastating economic consequences, or they're going to open up their, their shop on Shabbos and they're going to break Shabbos. So therefore, in many of the rabbinic gatherings, including uh, Varsha and Vilna, they asked permission for to to keep it um, to keep it open. But I should point out the mice is that 
This, however, was a temporary measurement, while the permanent law of Sunday rest was only accepted by the state Duma, the lower chamber of the parliament in 1910. The Duma's version of the law ex- uh, included no exceptions, expressing the nationalistic feeling of the Duma majority and its unwillingness to take into account the interests of Jews or even Muslims who lived in the, in the, in the Russian Empire. However, the upper chamber of the parliament, the state council, revised the law in 1912, in which its final final form allowed the shops to be open for Sunday for five hours. Um, it's not because they care too much about the, whether Judaism or, or or Islam, but you know they wanted to preserve the old order. Um, also, there was a, there was the idea of of uh, they allowed fifteen hour workday for shop assistants, whatever. Some other laws that were involved with the shop assistants were reinstated, so you know they let us go through also. Okay, so this is a very important law that was being discussed. And yet the Shtadronists did do something, and uh, and the Jewish leaders were satisfied by this. Uh, Legislative revision, but uh, but the the thing is, officially this was a general law, and it wasn't like anti-Semitic per se. It didn't care about Jews, but it wasn't anti-Semitic per se. So they weren't ready to allow it to be discussed. But they said it's a dire thing, and being that it was a dire thing, so you know, in the end of the day, Shmuel <coughs> was already discussing by the by the conference as well that we have to bring it up. To the to the Russian government, we have to bring it up to the Duma even before the conference, and then they were discussing it after the conference. Now, I should point out they brought in this guy to the Sifra Vilna, one of the Chasva Askanim in Vilna. His name was Adam Lips, Lips, or Lipich, to to explain the matter of what it could, what effect it could be to the Yiddish Kehillas if if they, this law goes into effect. And it was like, like like real discussions, you know. In the conference in Vilna, you had Rafalovich from from Kremenchuk, Bavchirov. He was um, he, he discussed in general how it could be, you know, you can have two days or three days if you have a Christian holiday between, and so you have a bad massive of economic massive. So then automatically people stop. You know, stop keeping Shabbos so they can keep it open. And they would disc- they would actually discuss all types of methods how to deal with the government. I would just point out that I did it. Rabbi said, you know, we have a very simple solution to tell the government if they really care. The whole thing is to care about the workers. It's not a problem. So, so, so the idea is the amount of hours we get, the amount of days they have to work. Why should it cure Dafka a certain day? So one place will be yeah, it could be Sunday, or it could be you know like like the, like like the offer we do for for in America we give for the for the Jewish workers, not for the business owner for the worker that you don't want to work a Shabbos so do the same amount of hours on Sunday other parts of the week here same for the owners so fine so we'll say it well, well if you care about the workers but that was all these different suggestions now, um, there's also another thing is to discuss so much the, of the. Of the humanitarian crisis that it can cause, you can't really say to the government because they don't care. They they they're not they, they want to hear what you say about about the about not about the the crisis that figure out themselves. But you could really tell them, of course, people to mechal Shabbos. Fine, you have to discuss it. Anyways, 
Another issue, and this also shows the Jewish life at the time, where this guy, um, Katzen Ellenberg from Pettenberg, he brought out that, you know, <coughs> the, the Duma, they tell you, hey, in Kavna, you have all these chasubah, and we have to keep the stores open on Shabbos, so they can keep it open on Shabbos. Why can't other people keep it open on Shabbos? Which this is also a reflection of Jewish life, that unfortunately things were breaking down, and... And therefore, it affected, you know, how the law was being, you know, formulated. Now, it's getting late and we're running out of time, so we're going to discuss a number of things, but we'll have to discuss each one in short. So, I'll discuss a few more things of Shabbos, not everything, but we'll just discuss very quickly. So, another very important thing about Shabbos was about the issue of, of Yiddish Akinda and Jewish people that were learning in state schools, unfortunately, they were learning in state schools, and there was officially a provision that allowed Jewish children to abstain from writing on Shabbos from the 1860s and 70s, but it was rescinded in 1882. Several att- attempts were, were made to restate the provision, but uh, it was unsuccessful. So, basically, um, basically what's happening is that, you know, these kids were writing on Shabbos. Once they write on Shabbos, and Shabbos, what should you do about it? So there were three approaches how to deal with it. One approach was... To, to ask, you know, we're asking for permission not to write on Shabbos. Now, some people said, no, one of them. You're in a class, it doesn't, yeah, even if you have permission, it doesn't help. Because the kids in the class, see all their friends are writing, so they're going to write anyways. As we saw in certain places where they got permission to help, and they were anyways in the Chal Shabbos. Another issue was that, that, um, that it was felt very important the kids have to be in the environment of their parents uh, a Yiddish environment of Shabbos and being in the school environment affects them and they automatically Bechal Shabbos in general not even writing and it changes the entire attitude and you be a Yiddishkeit and what's even worse is that they were affecting the, their friends all around and the 1900s was getting very bad we had all these kids going to these public schools and they were affecting everybody else around and this was a very important discussion so how do you deal with it? So, as I said, some people said, just ask them to provision just not to write on Shabbos other people said, no so they shouldn't have to go to school on 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 uh, on on um, on Shabbos, get a special hat to not to go to school. And there was a different discussion. I'm I'm going through this quick because I'm not to talk about it, but I'm going through this quick because time is short. Another issue was you know, you know, there was this idea that the Yidden were summoned to court on Shabbos, and a lot of times they made you sign a document, and uh, they, they what you call it some, uh, and, uh, and 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 there was a big issue about that. Um, you know, Russian imperial law also prohibited taking, you know, taking uh, oaths on, um, in, in the song on, on Shabbos. So, and the oath during court trial had to be arranged by a rabbi according to the same laws. However, a, a judge could administer the oath of, of Jewish witnesses when no rabbi was present in the building of a court of justice. What does this mean? Taking the oath administered by the judge became a widespread pra- practice. In such cases, the oath could be taken legally on Shabbos if the Yiddish aid the witness had no objections. And it's, it turned out that there were many Yiddin taking this oath. Now, Now, the bottom held that uh, <laughs> the inclusion of this prohibition to swear an oath on Shabbos and civil law would prevent the situation in which it was easier to break Allah than to keep it. So, basically, it would help spread the Yiddishkeit. Fine. Uh, um, another issue. Another issue I want to bring up is in of Milan. I definitely want to bring it up because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this thing. 
so you know, I've seen many people in general at the time. There was a there was a newspaper report that the Rebbe Rashab said by the conference in Petersburg that uh, someone who doesn't put on film is, is not a Jew. And this was reported, that not only was reported in the newspapers, people asked other Rabbanim, you know, what do you say about this? Now, now one of the Rabbanim said, I didn't hear him say that, but, you know, but it just shows you what discussions. Another thing is that, uh, officially, Rebbe Rashab said that if, if, if you don't have a Mila, if a, a, someone who doesn't have a Mila is not a Jew, and therefore we're not going to write him down in the census that, that, that he was a Jew. Now, and I want to tell you, this, this reported later on in many places, reports that Rebbe Rashab said this, but it's a big mistake. It's not, that's not what he said. He didn't say he's not a Jew. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. Number one. Number two, it wasn't only the Rebbe Rashab's that This was the opinion of many, many people. Basically, and this was even a Bonami Tamil that basically, it actually was a, whose job is it to write in the census when someone's born? The Rabbi Tam? It's his job. Now, the Rabbanim Tam, they themselves, some of them weren't even from many times, but even they were from, they weren't too educated. They refused to write down a child that was born, that did not have a meal, refused to write it down in the census that they were in the, in, in the census. Why? Because the, they said that this was a way to force a child to get a, to get a meal. So what did write down? So he's... he's, 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 he's so he claimed the reason is because our job, we're officially rabbis, we're writing down religious events, so we're writing down <coughs> when a bris happens. We're not writing with birth. A birth is not a ritual, a religious, uh, a religious event. <laughs> but but the, the Russian government said, hey, one minute, how in the world are we supposed to know this guy was born if you're not going to write down you know, his birth? So that was a conundrum. And his reason was, because that was the way I forced him to, to, to do a meal, and the claim was that basically, it's a, it's a, it's essential to Yiddishkeit that someone has a bris milah. But again, it didn't say you're not a you're not a Jew. They just said that was their internal reason why they felt the push that you sh- that you shouldn't mark down, you shouldn't write down someone who didn't have a bris milah. Now there was a few other issues. You know, there was the issue of soldiers um, in the army. I'm not discussing, you know, Cantonists, which was a younger age, was another discussion. But this. We can give a whole entire podcast just on itself on the on the soldiers in the Russian army. Issues well known. The the you know everybody knows the famously all the literature that you discuss. How how do you make sure that a guy doesn't get caught in, up in the draft and their entire families in America that live here because their great grandfather ran away to from the draft to America. There's all these type of stories that escaped the draft and and many people have all these phony names because they had to recreate their identities. You know. And you know, from when Jews were drafted into the Russian army to 1914, over one and a half to two million Jews served in the army. And it was a very, very, very big issue. Firstly, again, not even the Cantonist aside. Officially, there were certain laws that were there to provide for religious, basic religious needs for Jewish soldiers. And the higher ups of the army usually tried to accommodate it. Was the lower ups that weren't, you know, so amenable. But but what happened was is that um, what happened was he, let's do this like this. So, Russian law recognized the basic religious needs of Jewish soldiers. And commanders were supposed to provide them room to prayer, where they're able to daven, and they're free from labor and Shabbos and Yom Tif, and they have leave of absence of certain Yiddish uh, Yom Tifim. However, obviously, unsurprisingly, these provisions bore a character more suitable to Christianity, not to, you know, traditional Yiddish guy. Since the main emphasis is put on prayer, And uh, and uh, not observe not on observing everyday religious you know m- you know mitzvahs and and complicated laws of kashas nuances were completely 
omitted. For example, while the Ministry of War published, published an animal calendar of of Yiddish Yom Tevim, it consistently failed to mention that they begin at Shkir on the previous day. As a result, many ca- commanders, being faithful to orders, were not ready to release the soldiers <laughs> the night before. So the Rabbanim wanted the legislation on how we get the soldiers to take off from the very beginning of the Yom Tevim. There were many different details. The, the Rabbanim were very interested in creating conditions where Yiddish soldiers would be able to continue an observant way of life. Not just, you know, besides for the fact, you know, the Chavetz Chaim wrote his famous Sefer, Machi Yisrael, for soldiers in the army, how to deal with these. Basically, the Rabbanim wanted that you should have Yiddish soldiers should not work on on Shabbos, they should have kosher kitchen, they should be able to wear tzitzis, the uniform under the uniform, they should be able to put on towels and fill in the uh, in, in the military kit bags, and they also wanted that there should be military uniforms that shouldn't have shotness. Now, at the end of the day, you know, the Russian government wasn't so meaningful, but I'm just trying to, this was a serious condition, as I mentioned, from 1820, I forgot, 25, 27, till 1914, one and a half million or two million Yidin actually served in the armies. This is a serious discussion over here. Now, I have to go quickly, I'm going to discuss a few more issues. Um, there was a lot of shyness when the game Maryland was, and but again, I don't want to get. I don't have time. I want to discuss two things. First of all, they wanted the Russian government to um, to recognize a get that was given through a shliach. What's called through a proxy. Now, um, what's this whole part? So, uh, so why do they want it? Because see, the state authorities didn't recognize such divorces, but it was a very pressing problem because mass immigration of Yidin going overseas, lots of situations in which husbands in America sent the Lachivald get into the wide remaining Russian Empire, but the Russian Empire wouldn't officially recognize it. So, why do why, why I feel need to why I feel need to bring it up because it's an important thing that point that mirrors what was taking place at that time. And it was another issue. This wasn't a big issue actually, but it was an issue that exists nevertheless of people husbands who converted. Now there was a whole discussion in the, in the church back and forth, but in the end the law was that if you were a Jew married to a woman and, and you converted to Christianity, if you wanted to marry a Gershaw woman, you didn't have to give a get to your wife because it was dissolved automatically by converting. Now it created a big problem for the from, for the Jewish wife. Now she doesn't have a get so she's become a guna. So it wanted the the Rabbanim wanted to amend the law. Now I, I want to bring out something very interesting. There's a law that wasn't mentioned and remember we're discussing other countries. What about Shita? Now very interesting. There wasn't an issue with Shita. The only place they had an issue with Shita was the issue in Finland. In Russia, they had the first idea to Angus Shita appeared in 1876, while the Society of Protection of Animals initiated this question again in 1891. However, however, there was energetic defenses based in, based in various arguments of scientific experience, and Michal, the, the government didn't want to get involved in it, and so they didn't get involved against Shita. There was Episode Bill that came up in 1913 in the Duma, but that was shelved. But Finland, which was an autonomous state under the Russian Empire, Shechita was indeed on in 1909. And at that time, at that time, um, and the, there was a whole discussion, and in the end they had to, Finnish Jews had to bring in their meat from, 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 from Petrick. And the Maisi is that this was something that Mamish pinged the Russian Abonim, and they discussed about it very much at length by the Vilna Conference. But uh, in the end of the day, in the end of the day, you know, they weren't able to over, overturn it. But my point is that if you compare it to other countries, in most of the Russian Empire, they didn't have a problem with Shrita. 
only problem that had issue with Shechit in certain places is that you had the Shailah, if you can inflate the lungs, you know, after you have to check to see if the scarring, you know, for a tzaifus. So, so, uh, so the medical laws of the empire, you can't inflate the lungs, the lungs by the mouth. They wanted to have a shush to inflate the lungs by the mouth. Now, I want to point out two things, um, <coughs> which are not completely... Um, pertinent to the discussion of, of civil law, but something very interesting that came out um, in the in the Asifa in Vilna. One of the things they discussed over there, and everybody agreed with it. Everybody agreed that they need to invest money and time and effort to create a, 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 a basically um, a, a from a from a media. A lot of the issue from a media, from a educational material, from a from a from a literature, um, so they, they, it, it, it takes a lot of money, but uh, so they they basically wanted to create an organization that would fundraise money to put out these things. It's just very interesting. This is for the Chaim was at the Sifra Vilna, the Chaim Reza, as I mentioned, the, the Rebbe Shab, all these people, and they very, very much strongly push very much that you should create a, a firm alternative for media and for paraphernalia and all these type of things. This is something very important to point out. Now, I, I just, just in general, I want to point out something else that David Kamenetsky in his book on Chaim Reza, he says that the Vilna Sifra was the evidence you saved for all the Sifras, Chashra, Sifras that came afterwards, and you saved the Bagudas Yisrael. So he writes, if Chaim Reza was, as a relationship, the Sifra was the Ruach Chaya of the Sifra, and, and later on, as the, as the manic of, of Kali Yisrael, this is, it was affected, and affected the two gang of Bagudas Yisrael. I just want to point out that, I don't know if it did affect, it didn't affect the Bagudas Yisrael, but if it did, so I should point out that the fact is that really, the, 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 the a lot of the, 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 the Conclusions of that asifa was actually um, was actually um, basically orchestrated by the Rebbe Nashab. So if if a good soul is directly affected by this asifa, so it's directly affected by the Rebbe Nashab. So that's in regards to that. So we finish with that. Thank you very much for listening. This is Nacham Zayins with the Jewish History Schmooze, and I hope you enjoyed. And I hope you'll be back with us again by the next episode.